But we're in Jude. We're going to read in a moment, verses 17 through 25, continuing our series, Asking for a Friend. We're going to be talking about doubt today. Verse 17, in the book of Jude, chapter 1, because there's only one chapter. If it's not numbered, you're not going to find it. Just look for the verses. They always confused me growing up. Jude 17. Here's what it says. This is God's word. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. In Mark chapter 9, we meet a man that comes to Jesus and his apostles with a son who had been troubled with the inability to speak and convulsions and all sorts of problems that endangered his life. Now this father has heard about Jesus and his healing power and he's even witnessed some of the remarkable things that Jesus has done so far and he brings his boy to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the man responds with some of the most real words in the Bible. I believe, only help my unbelief. I believe, only help my unbelief. It brings up a question that we all have, right, like about doubt that we're going to talk about this morning, a question that I've heard a lot of times in talking to non-Christians and Christians about, about the place that doubt plays in our faith, in our ability to say with confidence that we're trusting in Jesus, that we're walking with Jesus. Where does doubt fit into this? Is it possible, some have asked me, is it possible for me to be a Christian and still wrestle with doubt. Or they've said, do I have to take a blind leap of faith and ignore all of my questions if I want to be a Christian? How do I deal with the doubts that I have about my faith? The questions that I don't have answers to? Or others who have said, how can I address my areas of unbelief that seems so evident by my actions. 
This morning we're going to talk about doubt and we're going to try to, to at least answer to some degree questions about doubt. Particularly, is it possible for me to be a Christian and still wrestle with doubt? And I don't know if you've ever had that question, but my guess is for everyone that's here, you've wrestled with levels of uncertainty and disbelief and doubt in your life, maybe even this week. One of my professors in college was a guy named Dr. Gary Habermas. He's one of the world's foremost scholars on the resurrection. Uh, he lost his wife to cancer and went through a particularly sharp period of doubt in his life. And after, after coming through that season, he wrote a book called Dealing with Doubt that I found particularly helpful. Now, the book is primarily out of print, but I did go on Amazon this morning and I saw you could still get used copies for about $25. Uh, but if you Google it, I'm pretty sure there's like a PDF or something of it online. In this, in this helpful book called Dealing with Doubt, Gary Habermas describes three misconceptions people have about doubt. And I think it's important for us to name those misconceptions before we dig into how this passage helps us see some of the sources of doubt and how to deal with doubt in our own lives. He says, he names these three misconceptions. They should be on the screen in a moment. Number one, first misconception is that doubt is uncommon among Christians. Doubt is uncommon among Christians. The general lack of transparency in people's lives and our fear that we will not find a safe place to talk about our concerns often contributes to the sense that if you have, if you have questions in the church, they're not really welcome. Moments or seasons of doubt then are sometimes seen to be something wrong that it seems like nobody else among us has the problem. But the reality is, doubt is not uncommon among Christians. In 18 years of pastoral ministry, I've found that almost everyone wrestles with some level of questions about their faith, some season of time where they go through doubts. Which brings me to my second misconception. The second misconception that Habermas mentions is the misconception that true believers never experience doubt. So we might go, oh yeah, well, there seems to be lots of people who call themselves Christians who experience some sort of doubts. But the real true believers, a genuine believer, never experiences any level of doubt. Like there's some sort of category of Christians that don't wrestle with real humanness. Well, this misconception comes with a lack of understanding about the human heart, often a lack of honesty, and particularly, I think, a poor definition of what doubt itself really is. So let me try to help you with that right off the bat. Some wrongly think that the opposite of belief is doubt, that if we put the two out there, we go, okay, here's belief, and the opposite of belief is doubt, and therefore, if I'm experiencing any doubt, I'm experiencing the opposite of belief, and therefore, how can I say that I believe, or I trust, or I have faith? But the opposite of belief is decisive unbelief. Doubt is a wavering uncertainty about something. In fact, here's a good definition of what we're talking about when we are talking about doubt. Doubt is a troubling level of uncertainty. A troubling level of uncertainty about some aspect of your faith, about some truth claim in the scriptures, about the trustworthiness of God's promises, a troubling level of uncertainty in your life. We would call that doubt. 
And genuine believers may experience troubling levels of uncertainty about their faith for a whole host of different reasons. So it's a misconception that true believers never experience doubt. Third misconception is that doubt is always bad. That somehow doubt is always an enemy. Doubt is uncomfortable, but it need not always be viewed as an enemy. Times of doubt actually push us into finding the sort of support for our faith needed for future faithfulness in the same way that times of drought cause a tree to become more rooted in the soil that it's been planted in. Doubt, in a way, can reveal where we have not become rooted in and strengthened in the reality of God's presence and his care for us in this world. And so like pain in the body that alerts us that there may be a problem, doubt helps us see where our understanding remains untested and unclear. And so doubt is not always bad. It's a part of growing and becoming strengthened in our faith. I thought of this because two weeks ago, I borrowed the Chapman's Jeep for the week while the youth used our van at World Changers. Some of you know where this story's headed. It was hot. We took the doors off to cruise around and give ourselves some air. And when Saturday came, we were getting ready to get our, uh, get, get our van back. And we were looking forward to having AC again. And I, was, I, I went ahead and I decided I'm going to grab the doors and I'm going to put the doors back on uh, the Jeep. And I just finished working out and so I was tired, you know, and I was not thinking and I got really careless and I grabbed this, this Jeep door and when I grabbed the door, I'd forgotten that it had soft top windows. And the soft top windows just have pegs that go down into the actual metal door and, and they just hold on there that way. And I picked up this Jeep and I had both hands on the soft top window, which it's amazing because they're perfectly designed to be able to get the door off the ground, but not to actually hold it once you have it off the ground. And so I picked it up and I got it to about here and the bottom of that metal door dropped off and landed square across my left foot. Yes, thank you. A little more sympathy. Could we have just... <laughs> you know, I preached the next day and most of you didn't even notice. I was hobbling around a little bit. But right away, I told Annie, it's not broke. It's not broke. I, I just something about the way it landed on my foot. Uh, I didn't feel a crack, you know, I don't know if you do feel those, but, uh, but it just, I was convinced right away, I said, it's not broke, and I was walking around, I even tried to do some jumping jacks and show that I could hop and, and do other things, and she's like, you got to go and get ice, and then I started going into like a light stage of shock and white, and she made me lay down on the couch, and I got a little ice on it, and when I got back up, the swelling started. The next morning I woke up and it was swollen. That night actually we were with some other friends at Pillar and I was hobbling around. My foot was getting larger and larger. And I woke up the next morning and it wasn't terrible. Um, but throughout the day, uh, as Sunday wore on, it was kind of a bit of a long Sunday when we got to the evening. I mean, it barely fit in my shoe. And um, that certainty that I had, and confidence that I had at the beginning, where I was like, it's not broken. All of a sudden, when I woke up on, on Monday morning, I had a troubling level of uncertainty about whether I was right about that claim. And so I did what um, a smart person who listens to their wife would do. I went to the doctor and I dealt with my uncertainty and got an x-ray. And the x-ray confirmed that uh, I had, in fact, not broken my foot. 
The doctor told me then that I could do any activity that I could tolerate, which was great because we were about to go on vacation for a few days and it was nice to know that I could push it a little, I could be active and do all that. But, but there was that moment on Monday morning where my level of certainty and confidence that it wasn't broken had gone so low that I needed to do something about it. And by doing something about it, it put me at ease for the rest of the week. Because, you know, the misconception is that doubt is always bad, but sometimes doubt leads us to pursue a new level of certainty that we need. The uncertainty led me to pursue what was needed to reach a place of greater clarity, not unlike the way doubt calls us to press into God for greater clarity that opens the way to seasons of strength and growth in our lives. So doubt's not always bad. Maybe you've been affected by these misconceptions about doubt, but we see that this passage actually is instructing us about the topic of doubt. The center of this passage is verse 22. Verse 22, we're given this instruction, have mercy on those who doubt. It's sort of like the clear statement in the midst of what he's been saying actually for the whole book about contending for the faith and being confident in our faith. And, and then he says, oh yeah, be merciful. Have mercy on those who doubt. Which means for us this morning, the big heading is be merciful to one another in times of troubling uncertainty. If, if we're going to be the kind of body where we explore honestly our faith and come to deeper levels of clarity and understanding that propel us into confident mission in God's world, we have to also be a place where it's okay for us to unearth our uncertainties, where we believe and are confident enough that Jesus can shepherd us through dark valleys, through difficult questions, and that he is powerful enough to hold us in the midst of that, that we can voice those things, that we can pursue health because it will cause us to become more rooted, more clear about who God is on the other side of being honest. And because of that, we all have to learn to become merciful to one another in the midst of our troubling uncertainty. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the sources of doubt are actually common to all of us. They have ways of touching all of our areas of life. There's n it's not like there's a particular person that will never be susceptible to some of the ways that doubt can come into our lives and into our faith. Although not exhaustive, this passage helps us see some of the potential sources of doubt. I want to say right up front, there are other sort of aspects, other ways you might need to explore this subject, but there are four particular ones that I think I want to highlight from this passage so that we see them, and then maybe you need to have conversations with your other brothers and sisters in your life groups, in your life who you trust, who, who trust in God's word, who are mature with God's word, and, and unearth other sources that may be there, other ways you may have questions. But these four seemed very prominent to me, and I think there are some ways here that, that we experience doubt that you may not have thought of before. So let's talk about them. Number one, first source, social pressure. One of the sources of doubt is social pressure. The passage begins by acknowledging that it's difficult to deal with the reality of those who scoff at our beliefs. It says, remember what the apostles said, verse 18, they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers. Well, that word scoffer isn't just someone who doesn't agree with us, but someone who ridicules you, pressures you away from the beliefs you have, thinks you're ridiculous for being rooted in God's word, for trusting the claims of the gospel, and isn't content enough 
with themselves being removed from it, but trying to dissuade you and ruin whatever they can in your relationship with God. It's a reality we must remember and heed the warning of the influence of those who scoff at our beliefs. And, and it's not always obvious when someone's doing it. The hard part is that scoffing can often be subtle. And in family relationships and in workplace relationships, through media and music and the way things are expressed in popular culture, there's scoffing. There are those who have the power to divide us off at times from the Lord's work and clarity if we're not careful. It isn't just their intellectual challenge, but, but the emotional social challenge of not being accepted and being scoffed at that can raise in us a troubling level of uncertainty about whether we're really confident to stand where we've decided to stand. On the playground, it's called peer pressure, but in all honesty, it doesn't go away with age. It just becomes more hidden in our lives. Some of us, more than others, feel the pressure to fit in. Let's just be honest. Because of our experiences growing up or because of the, the sort of formation of our character, of our maturity, some of us feel more than others the pressure to fit in, but we're all affected by this. Even those of us who may not feel the allure of the culture at large may be as influenced by doubt because of the people we admire politically or in our workplace or in our school. More than a few times, I've seen people rethink their belief system to justify pursuing a romantic relationship with someone they felt a powerful emotional draw to. You see, those aren't intellectual doubts. Those aren't problems that you would write down. Those are social influences that challenge your certainty and confidence to stand where you stand in Jesus Christ. To cause you to have a troubling level of uncertainty about whether you want to remain there and lose what the culture promises, lose what the person promises, lose the affirmation of another person. That's a real and meaningful power. Paul Vitz is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at NYU. And uh, he wrote this, this really great book on the psychology of atheism. And uh, particularly in a, in a shorter article called The Psychology of Atheism, he describes how he was raised in the Midwest, in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he was raised in a marginally religious home. And uh, after he graduated from high school, having kind of been exposed somewhat to Christianity in a positive way, but never really being rooted, he went off to Stanford. And eventually in his graduate work at Stanford in psychology, he looked around and realized that all the people that he was trying to be like, all the, ones that, all the people that would determine his future in that field, they all had essentially embraced some level of atheism. And he realized real quickly that around him were students and everybody, that there was, there was an obvious pressure that if you were going to be successful and be in, in this field, that you would just follow behind that. That you wouldn't take the danger of raising your actual uh, beliefs to the surface, that you wouldn't question the status quo. You wouldn't bring up things like religion and belief in God in the midst of uh, a psychology degree because those were out of bounds. And only fools did that. And from that, he plunged himself for a season into what he described as a season of atheism in his life. And eventually, later in life, he 
came back to Christianity with a genuine faith in Christ and began to reflect on that and write about the social influences of doubt. In his essay, he describes that season of his life as a young student and uh, he, he says this, he admits that most of the students didn't make an intellectually reasoned descent into doubt and unbelief. It wasn't because of reasons. He said that his experience and the experience of other students that he knew in that place was because of my social needs to assimilate, because of my professional needs to be accepted as part of academic psychology, and because of my personal needs for a convenient lifestyle. For all these needs, atheism was simply the best policy. As you face doubts and work to be merciful to others, it's important to consider whether these doubts are a result of your desire to be accepted by others rather than rest in your acceptance and belonging in Christ. Because that is often a powerful source of doubt, social pressure. And so if you're there and you're thinking, you know, you're thinking about a moment of uncertainty in your life or you're trying to, you're asking for a friend, right? Uh, and you're trying to ask about this subject for a friend, you, you need to think, are some of the things that are going on here, some of the questions, some of my uncertainties and the troubled nature of them, are they really linked to my desire to fit in and be accepted? In the circles of the people that I admire, in the general shape of popular culture, social pressure. Second source that we see here, sinful rationalization. You may not have considered this, but often doubt, troubling uncertainty arises because of sinful rationalization. What do I mean by that? Well, you see here, he, when he describes scoffers and where they end up, the warning is that they are doing this following their ungodly passions. That, that the idea here is that beliefs do not always give way to our actions. Sometimes our desired actions cause us to go back and try to formulate beliefs that support us continuing in them. So another way maybe to think of that is that we might sort of retro-engineer a set of beliefs that allow us to keep doing things that we really want to do, that allow us to rationalize doing that. So one of the motivations of those who scoff, mentioned in the end of verse 18, is the desire to follow ungodly passions. Paul Vitz mentioned it in his quote above, that on top of the social pressure of fitting in, unbelief was a way of loosening himself from the responsibilities of Christian morality. And I'll tell you, over the years, I've seen more often than not, a plunge into doubt and unbelief has been precipitated by a desire to head off in the freedom of, of following lust, following a new pathway that God has for previously forbidden. Loosening ourselves from the responsibilities of Christian morality. So what's that mean for us? Sometimes our experiences of doubt really arise as a temptation to loosen ourselves from the very things God has restricted us from. First, there is the experience of temptation or desire then there is the recognition that God commands us to flee from that desire. Then there is the temptation to do away with God altogether in favor of giving ourselves over to some ungodly passion. This is a common pattern. It's, it's an observable pattern. You see, some of your experience of doubt, some of our experience of doubt and unbelief may just be a way to sear our conscience 
so that we can pursue a wayward desire in our heart. And so I think if you're looking in your own life at troubling levels of uncertainty, you have to come to a place of honesty where you could say, is part of this a way of freeing myself to pursue some things that I've otherwise felt restricted to do? Where I know that God restricts me from doing it? There's another version of this that I've seen pastorally. It's similar, but happens after someone has done something that they previously considered morally wrong. So for example, someone plunges into an affair and they have fallen into temptation and rather than respond in repentance, they respond by calling God into question. In our human weakness, when we feel genuine guilt, we cannot just leave it there. We either find mercy at the cross and we learn repentance through godly sorrow or we dim the lights and pretend that God is not there. We begin to sinfully rationalize and poke holes in all the things that would remind us that we have a responsibility to God and that we've broken that responsibility. And in the midst of that deep guilt and remorse, we make a decision to dim the lights. Because we have that capacity, it's important to consider it as a source of some experiences of doubt and ask ourselves, am I using my skepticism to avoid my responsibility to live in obedience to God? Is it the reality that I've considered myself a skeptic because I don't want to have to devote myself to the things that God calls me to obey? Listen, person who may be seeking here today, uh, you've come and you've been coming for a while and you've been kind of right there. You've been suspended in a place of doubt. Maybe not fully unbelief, not at a place of devoted belief in Christ. And you're there and you're trying to figure out, how do I move? And maybe you're wrestling today and maybe some of your skepticism is a way of just covering over, using a smoke screen because you don't want to have to lean into obedience in the ways that God calls us forth if you devote your life to Christ. And that can be true whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. I just want to tell you the world promises nothing that God's promises don't far exceed. Both in the present and in all of eternity. It becomes a question of trust, doesn't it? Do I trust that my ability to deliver pleasure that sin's ability to deliver pleasure is greater than the security of resting in God's promises for all eternity. And I wonder if you use, you've used doubt as a smokescreen from repentance and devotion to Christ. We have that capacity. So we have to ask ourselves the question, are my current doubts a way of numbing myself to the guilt of failure rather than seeking mercy in the cross? That's the second category sinful rationalization. There's a third category, spiritual neglect. So sometimes doubt arises just simply out of spiritual neglect. The encouragement of what to do in this passage is most clearly seen in verse 20 and 21. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Three phrases, build yourself up in the faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Here's one of the things that we need to see in this passage. In this passage, these are community activities. 
Community activities. What do I mean by community activities? Do I mean like the community at large? No, I mean these are activities that the body of Christ does together. We build one another up in faith. We pray with one another in the spirit. We keep one another in the love of God. We do it together as a community. We face the questions. We help one another get the answers that we need. We do not neglect identifying these areas and getting built up through our brothers and sisters. And so I want to say to you, in the midst of a community like this one, do not neglect the resources that God has put here for you to be able to deal honestly with your troubling levels of uncertainty. You know, in one sense, there's something to be said about a community of faith where God has placed thinking people, feeling people, doing people together so that we can work out our faith in a way that is real, that brings us into contact with the world, that deals with the realities of our emotions, that answers the questions that we have in our minds. And none of us have sort of the, the pure balance of being great at all of those things. That means that sometimes if you're a strong feeler, what you need to do is sit down and you got to bring your questions to a thinker who can help you think those things through and, and provide some answers that your feeling heart hasn't been able to get to. But also, some of you need to take those things that you've considered intellectual questions and you need to walk with somebody who's really actively experiencing God. <laughs> You need to see their faith on display. You need to see the way that God is present and working with them. You need to draw near to some people, and this is going to be surprising to you, who are experiencing deep trials, yet confident faith in God. And hear them say, in the midst of the deep, dark valley of my life, I felt the presence of God walking with me. And you need to go, I don't understand intellectually how that's fair. And I don't get how to piece all those answers together. But, but the Bible says that God shows up in the midst of our trials. He draws near to the brokenhearted. And I've seen it over and over and over again. You know, I have a degree in, in Christian apologetics and reason and worldview. But I, if somebody asks me, why do you believe in God? I never answer with intellectual answers. Because the biggest reason is one day facing the first surgery of my third daughter. When I needed it the most and knew I couldn't hold myself together, we cried out to God and said, God, we don't know how we're going to get through this. And that night, God sent the only person into our lives unannounced that could speak into it. Is that an intellectual answer? When I opened the door of, of, that, of that room in the PICU, and outside stood these two friends who had lost a child coming to tell us that no matter what would happen the next day, that, that it was going to be okay and the Lord would walk with us. I knew that God had come to visit. And so some of us who are struggling with intellectual doubts, you need to hear from other brothers and sisters who have walked with the Lord through difficulties and say, you know, you're, you're fishing down that path, but the Lord often answers our intellectual concerns with personal connection. If we neglect these conversations, though, where, do we, where are we going to get our help? We do this together as a community. There's a couple things I see even in this passage of building up and praying. Intellectual doubts are addressed through becoming more knowledgeable about our faith and the supporting answers. We do this together as a community. We face the questions. We help one another get the answers we need. And so I want to encourage you, don't neglect identifying these areas of your life and getting built up through other brothers and sisters here at Pillar. Intellectual doubt is a, 
is just one species of doubt. We've talked about social doubt and sin rationalization, but there are intellectual doubts. There are legitimate questions that you're yet to find an answer to. That you're yet to feel like you could have a satisfactory settling of that account. You're not the first person to ask the difficult questions about Christianity. Here's one of the things that you need to understand. You're not the first person to ask these questions. Everybody that's sitting in here faces the same questions you do. For centuries, millennia, Christians have been answering the same basic questions about human life and uncertainty and questions about God and his activity in the world and challenges from people who scoff at the faith. We have this powerful set of resources of people who've answered many of the most basic questions that you might be asking, but you're unaware of them yet. But there are people in the body who aren't who can help you. They can connect you to some of the best answers and the help that you need intellectually to address those things. Those aren't the only areas. There are emotional doubts. Emotional doubts often need Holy Spirit-empowered prayer. I just want to say, there are deep pains that we experience that leave us with an inexpressible uncertainty at times. Trauma in our life. Difficult seasons. Hard trials. Loss. Grief. J.P. Moreland calls these emotional doubts. They're, they're rooted in feelings of distress and fear and past pain and disappointment. They're not the sort of thing that you can write down and say, this is the idea that I'm doubting. I just need an answer to this. They're questions of whether God can resolve the hurt and the pain in a way that would really be satisfactory, of whether these moments of affliction are working for us in exceeding eternal weight and glory because we haven't tasted it yet. And we have this emotional level of uncertainty. And here, he says that part of this is, is pursuing spiritual disciplines and closeness of devotion to the Lord that comes through prevailing spiritual prayer. And I wonder how often our doubts are, arise out of our distance from God, our unwillingness to go to Him experientially, both personally, privately, and together, where we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit for and with one another to address the areas of emotional doubt and pain and past failure and hurt that are there. There's power in doing so. And then looking for others who can help you work through it. If we neglect learning to pray and learning to pray for one another, we leave ourselves open to a sort of doubt and uncertainty and miss out on experiencing the fellowship with God through prayer that often erases uncertainties with an unexpected move of the Spirit's power in our lives. Some of you here have forgotten a time where God showed up so clearly in your life through prayer. And when you were in need and the Lord just really showed up and, and over the years through the clouds of uncertainty and cultural doubt, you've forgotten how real that moment was where he's like, I could never doubt God again. You see, prayer powerfully prevails in times without word answers, but by touching us by the power of the Spirit in a particular way in places that often we can't even verbalize. Some of us need to be prayed for more often, to pray to the Lord more often about those areas. And then some doubts require deep and continual reminders of God's love in the gospel. He says here, keep yourselves in the love of God. Letting the gospel speak to every area of our lives so that we are built up in faith means for some of us that we need to address past experiences in theology that keeps us from knowing and experiencing the love of God in a real way. 
your, your past religious experiences, church experiences, what you believe, what you think you've understood about the Bible may in some ways actually be keeping you from a clear vision of who God really is. And with humility, we need to begin to unearth those things. We need to deal with the things of our past and the difficulties that we have so we have a clear vision of who God is. There are genuine blockages that need to be identified that often we bury because they are painful and difficult. But they are the roots of so much of our inability to know and experience God's genuine love for us that we cannot neglect dealing with them. We need to work together to keep ourselves in the love of God. I was recently conversing with someone who was experiencing uncertainty about God's forgiveness and their assurance because they felt like they were not keeping up well enough with spiritual responsibilities and missional activities. Maybe that's been you before. Listen, brothers and sisters, none of us will be saved by our level of spiritual activity. But if you grew up believing, listen, if you grew up believing that you have to prove that you're sincere to God before he will accept you in Christ, then you may struggle to keep yourself aware of God's abiding love for you in Christ and receive the promises of his forgiveness freely in the gospel. And so you've got to to begin to examine what theologically is going on there. What do I believe about God and how someone really responds in faith? And have I really understood it clearly so that I am receiving? He's saying here, keep yourselves in the love of God. What he means is remind yourselves often of how the love of God has freely come to you in Jesus Christ. Not because of your own works and effort. Because you won't keep yourself out of uncertainty, and you won't bring yourself into victory. God does it. God provides power and help. He speaks into the hard and difficult places of our lives. Some of us have these past experiences of pain and hurt that need to be talked with a godly counselor or someone with expertise at dealing with the ways these past experiences cloud our ability to know God's love. Don't neglect. Don't neglect spiritual discipline, spiritual nurture, spiritual care that leads to be building up. And some of us, even if you've neglected in the past, you're sitting here with uncertainty about things that you can be worked through, that can be worked through in your life that need to be addressed in your life if you're gonna move on to healthy confidence in the Lord. We wanna be a body where that's reality, where we point to the right kind of resources that help us do that. If we neglect these things, they can be sources of doubt. A distance from God where we've neglected the sort of community and conversation and prayer and drawing near to God that will help us. Are some of your own uncertainties rooted in spiritual neglect? Spiritual neglect to address areas of theology, of emotional struggle, of failure to grow fast enough. Or you need to just, you need to, you need to speak that to a wise and godly person who can help you work through it. Don't neglect being built up in your faith. Lastly, we just see one that I, that I want to mention before we leave the subject of sources. Consider a final category Jude gives us strain in ministry. Strain in ministry. And I'm not talking about formal ministry, although that's true. But strain in serving others on mission can often lead to experiences of doubt. In the text, we're, con- we're encouraged to engage in activity that pursues doubters just as Jesus has pursued us. In the midst of that activity, we're brought near to the fire of the spiritual battle. We're also brought near to the corruption of sin. We often feel weak and unable 
as others are unconvinced by our presentations of the gospel or our sharing of God's word, as we're frustrated about the sense of progress, as we see the reality of sin and its pervasiveness in people's lives. It can be discouraging. It can even at times cause us to question our own confidence. These things are disorienting and cause periods of uncertainty in ourselves through the fatigue that comes with, through the strain, through the lack of confidence. He even says, show mercy with fear. So when he says, go, show mercy to those who doubt, do it with fear. Tremble a bit because you're getting close to the fire. And as you get close to the fire, as you get close to the corruption of sin that has even stained the garment of the person that you're wanting to rescue, know that that's a danger. Know that it is a danger for you to fall yourself. Sometimes the sin that has a deep grip can throw you off. Ministry activity brings us close to the battle in ways that make us face our own weaknesses and the spots where we lack confidence. If we're not careful, we will be swayed by the things we are challenged with and can experience troubling uncertainty as our ministry is less effective than we would like. Parents, as we lead children, as we minister to aging children who've walked away from the faith and we question our own decisions, struggles that we have as we minister to family members extended family members longing to see them respond to the gospel but find that our sharing of the gospel and our reasons don't move them we could experience a level of disappointment before long we experience doubt and uncertainty disappointment with God we're close to the fire Well, there is good news in this passage. We're pointed in verse 24 to where the hope is. Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Jesus died to save doubting people. Jesus died to save people who have a troubling level of uncertainty but entrust themselves to him. Jesus died to bring us unto greater confidence in the love of God. He's merciful and able to save those who at times waver in their faith and he invites us to bring all of our fear and all of our uncertainty to him. John the Baptist was the one who introduced Jesus to the world at Jesus' baptism. And he sees Jesus coming and he says with confidence, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Powerful clarity. Amazing confidence. A really decisive statement about who Jesus is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of the world. Well, in Luke 7, sometime later, John the Baptist is in prison. And the kingdom of God has not really rolled out quite the way that John the Baptist had, had expected. He's in prison, and I think he partly suspects that Jesus should get him out and break him out of there. And Jesus actually tells him that that is not his plan. And so, John sends some of his disciples to ask a question. And it's a question full of uncertainty. 
Are you the one or should we look for another? Luke 7, 20. Are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus responds to him, not by really addressing the question, but he says to his followers, he says, tell them the blind see and the lame, they walk. And the prisoners who have been captive by the power of the evil one are being set free. A reference to the promises of Isaiah about who the Messiah would be that would speak right to the heart for John the Baptist. And they go back and they tell him. And so Jesus doesn't directly answer his question. He points to himself. I'm worth trusting in. I'm the one who's been promised. You see, our hope, our hope is not in getting all of our questions answered. Our hope is in a person. And today, if you struggle with some uncertainty and some doubt, Jesus welcomes you. He welcomes you to put full confidence in him and what he's promised for you and his ability to lead you on through whatever dark season you may go through from the difficult questions you have. And he welcomes you to bring those around his throne, to confess them to him, to ask for his help so that he can give you the confidence that he has for you to experience. And so some of you today, maybe the first step for you in faith is actually to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I believe, I want to believe, Help my unbelief. Would you help me have greater clarity and greater confidence so I can begin to walk down this road trusting the promises that you, and I just want to put my hope and trust in you to lead me on because I found that no one else can provide it. Maybe today that's the first step that you need to take. There are others here who maybe your step today is just to begin to practically address and deal with some of those questions and bring them to the Lord to ask for God's mercy to help you in the midst of doubts and uncertainties and questions to engage in life in a body and in small groups and in relationships with other Christians in a way that will help you in an ongoing and continual basis experience fresh renewal from God experience of God truth from God and confidence in Him and so We come together not as a people who are always full of absolute certainty. We come as weak people like Peter, who Jesus went and found after he denied him. We come as doubting people like Thomas, who said, unless you show me a bit more, I'm not sure I can believe all this. But he came to Jesus. We come like John the Baptist with our question, saying, I'm going to need some help right now. And we say to the Lord, We're your people. We belong to you. We trust in you. And we ask for you to help us, to strengthen us, and to keep us. Because you are the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. And if your confidence today is in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in yourself, you know there's weakness in us, but there's great strength in him. And we gather around the table today as a community that says we trust in Jesus. And if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, if you've turned from your sin, we want to invite you to just be renewed by resting in that promise today, to to rest in the love of God as we take the bread and the cup. And so that is our invitation to you today. And I ask if you'd bow your heads and pray with me.
God, we thank you for today. We come with all of our fears and concerns, with our weaknesses and struggles. We ask that you would help us to build one another up in faith, to pray for one another. And we pray right now, Lord, for the touch of your spirit in our lives, for the presence of your work that goes beyond just ideas and words on a page, but to the reality that is within us. And we ask, God, that you would work. Lord, we know we have questions, but we trust that you are a faithful God who has made us and created us to know you. And so in this moment, help us to rest in our confidence in what Jesus has done for us through the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.